the slides, so if you do not have the actual word, you can follow along in the slide. So 1 John chapter 5, we're going to read it, we're going to read from verses 13 to 21, and we are going to conclude our sermon series in the book of John, the book of 1 John. Um, it is it, This passage alone, there's just so much to talk about, just reading through the passage. Um, as I was preparing, as I was studying, I was like, there is just so much for us to learn, so much content in this passage. But we're going to try to see how we could um, preach this whole passage from 13 to 21. And, but I would, a, I would exhort all of us to just read it on our own, to just study it and meditate on God's word. There's so much to learn from this passage. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sin that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and that we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. One of the things that strike me as odd whenever I'm witnessing to unbelievers, whenever I'm speaking to my unbelieving friends, is their obsession with the questions related to sex before marriage. One of the constant refrains that I hear is the idea that we should, quote, test out the waters before getting married so that we could know if there really is true compatibility. How could I know if she really is compatible? And so we must test out the waters in order for us to see if there really is chemistry. Now, we could think of so many problems with that question alone. We could think about many, many, uh, we, we could think of so many ways in which we could answer to those kinds of objections. But one thing that we should note is the idea that in actuality, you're not really loving that person. You are actually using them. You are allowing another human being to be the most vulnerable that they could ever be just so that you could test out the waters. So marriage, friends, is not just a piece of paper. It actually is a covenant 
that you are making to that person before God and in front of everybody else that you will never leave them, that you will fulfill your obligation as husband or wife, then if there are failures in the arena of, say, the bedroom, if there are failures, guess what? There is no fear that a person will leave. There's no fear. That is, in, that is actually true love. And you struggle together and you grow together. There's no longer the fear of, I have to put out my best performance in order for the, to keep this relationship. The covenant changes everything. The covenant changes everything. The covenant or the promise changes everything. Now, marriage is only a picture, right? Marriage is only a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And God himself, Christ himself, makes a covenant with us. Christ says, look, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I love you, and I will keep you until the end. He makes a covenant with us. He makes a promise with us. But even though Christ makes this covenant with us, and even though this covenant is true, and even though this covenant is real, if we do not believe that those, this covenant is for us, that the promise is true for us, how can we explore the full blessings of being a Christian? Yet perhaps we know and we understand that, yes, Christ died for the sinners. We understand and we believe that Christ really does rescue sinners. And we have confessed ourselves that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we've made a profession, and, and we ourselves have trusted in Jesus Christ. But oftentimes we struggle with the idea of, yes, I know that it's true over there, but does it, is it true for me? Does it apply to me? Somehow we do have confidence that Jesus Christ did what he said he did. And you believe in the resurrection. But oftentimes, we want to live in a performance-driven Christian life in order for God to love us. We want to give God our best so that God could, in turn, love us so that God could save us. As we wrap, wrap up our series in the book of 1 John, today I want to conclude with speaking about the blessings of assurance. The blessings of assurance. Now what I mean by this title is simply this, that there are real benefits in having, being assured that we are saved. There are true blessings that we get when we are assured that we are saved. And thus we could explore those benefits today. Obviously we won't be able to explore the full benefits but I want to do this in three main categories today. Number one, I want to talk about the purpose of this book. Number two, I want to talk about the blessings of assurance. 2A, I want to talk about the assurance, how assurance actually affects our prayer. And in 2B, it affects our, the, the other members of our body. And then I'm going to conclude with some words about fighting idolatry and see how it relates to this passage. So number one, consider with me the purpose of this book. Look at verse 13 with me. John says plainly here that he writes these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know 
that you have eternal life. You see the purpose? You see what John just said just here? He says, I write this to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Some do not have eternal life and they think they possess it. That is true. Some really, truly, genuinely believe that they are Christian, but they are really not Christian. And I pray that if they read through the book of 1 John, they would realize that they really are not converted. And upon reading it, maybe, maybe throw themselves upon Jesus Christ. But some actually do trust in Jesus Christ. And they are converted, but they don't know it. John's purpose, he writes this. He says, I write to you so that you know you have eternal life. I want to ask you a question. How would your life be different? How would your life look like if you knew 100% that you possessed this eternal life? How much would things change if you had the absolute confidence that you are right in Jesus Christ, that his love is upon you. Well, this is the exact purpose of this book. He says, I write to you so that you know that you have eternal life. Now, if John had been writing to believers so that they would know, this leads me to conclude that it is entirely possible for a true child of God to struggle with assurance. You follow me? If John is writing to true believers in order to help them understand and to believe that they really, to, to help them know that they really possess eternal life, this leads me to conclude that it is possible for true Christians to struggle with doubt of their salvation. And it would be foolish for me to not believe that some of you here are not struggling with assurance. Perhaps everyone around you sees you as a confident Christian, but deep down in the crevices of your heart, you are struggling with believing that Christ loves you as much as he says that he loves you. You know without a shadow of a doubt that Christ really did die on the cross for sinners. Without a doubt, you believe in the resurrection, but you don't necessarily believe that it's applied for you. And maybe you don't even think that it's possible for you to come to a place of assurance. Consider the book of 1 John as a gift for you. The Holy Spirit inspired John to write that we can grow in our knowing. But let's consider the benefits. We're going to talk about some practical things that we can do to help us. But let's think, first of all, of the benefits of having this assurance of salvation. Verse 14. Consider the benefits with me. Verse 14, we understand that assurance gives you confidence to approach God in prayer. Verse 14, it says this. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How much would your prayer life change if you believe that God loves you eternally on the basis of Jesus Christ alone? How much would your prayer life change if you believe that Jesus Christ loves you, God loves you eternally upon the basis of Christ's merit? 
If you have a heart that condemns you all the time and tells you that you are far away from Christ, how could you possibly have the assurance to pray? So yes, assurance does change and it does affect your prayer life. But let's see something here. He does not merely say that God listens to the Christian. He says that the confidence that we have towards him is this, that we can ask him for anything. Note the word anything. We can ask him for anything. We can ask for anything in accordance to his will, and he will hear us. This hearing us is not merely listening to, but a hearing with a disposition to act upon his hearing, to act upon our request. So from this day forward, if you are a genuine believer, I want you to believe that on the basis of Christ's finished work, you are able to ask your father for anything in accordance to his will, and he will hear you. So assurance that you are saved gives you the assurance that you can approach the Father in prayer. You can go to your Father in prayer. And sometimes, friends, we want to dilute a passage, don't we? We like to dilute the power of a passage with the objections in our minds. I have them. You have them. I know the objections in your mind. Yeah, you said, I know, I know, I understand this, but um, my objection is this. It, it has to be according to God's will. And, and somehow, knowing that it has to be God's will, somehow it drives you away from prayer. But is this passage meant to discourage you? Or is this passage meant to encourage you to run before the throne of grace? He says, you can ask him for anything as long as it's in, in accordance to God's will. Look at that emphasis. Believers, do you believe in God's word? Do you believe in this passage? And John is not speaking to those who are harboring sin in their hearts, unwilling to confess it. We know that it says in Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, Psalm 66, 18, the author says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not have listened to me. So that is so true. That the Lord will not listen to us when we have this iniquity in our hearts. And so that's why it's important when we go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But notice the confidence that we even have even when we do sin. The kind of confidence that we have even when we do sin, that we know that he is faithful and he is just. That we're not going to God and say, God, I'm going to try to make penitence. I'm going to try to do X amount of things in order for you to love me. Though that he will faithfully forgive you. See how it bases God's forgiveness on his own character? He's faithful. He is just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness? But then the qualification. Let's consider, consider the qualification, right? It says, according to God's will. So if you ask anything, not just if you just simply just ask anything, hey, God, 
Um, we know there are a lot of people that abuse these passages. They'll try to, you know, ask God for, uh, you know, a lot of money, a car, clothes, all of these things, these material things. Um, we know that there are abuses to this passage, but for some, somehow for true believers, I don't know, it, it seems to drive true believers away from prayer, but no, it should drive you towards prayer. I know that a lot of, there are a lot of abuses to it, and so the qualifications, let's consider this qualification. He says, in accordance to God's will. There are many things that we could desire, truly, genuinely desire, that is not in accordance to God's will. He will not answer those prayers. The only way... The only way that you and I can understand God's will is through looking at his word in the Bible. The more that we, the more that we, are, we, we nourish ourselves in God's word, the more that we understand God's will. And the more that we understand God's will, the more our prayers will be aligned to God's will. And so I pray that this will encourage you. And I pray that you will be reminded of the reality that the assurance of your salvation, being assured, being confident that what Christ has done for you applies to your life that will affect your prayer life. I want you to just hear this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? I want you to sink, let that sink in. If we know how to give good gifts to our children, though we are evil, how much more will our Heavenly Father give good gifts to his children, to his children, when we ask. How would our prayers be different if we had the assurance that what Christ did was for us and that God is hearing us on the basis of Jesus Christ? You know, I know we always say in the end of our prayers, we just you know, we really say it really fast, like, in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Like, stop. Do you realize what you're saying? We're praying on the basis of the Son of God, on who He is, and on what He has done. And on that basis, you are asking God for the things that you're asking God. Okay, so assurance, when I have that kind of assurance, it affects me, it affects my prayer life. But look how that even bleeds over to the rest of the congregation. Let's see. Um, I want you to consider the possibility that assurance actually affects the rest of the members of the body of Christ. It, the, the passage says, um, Verse 16, it says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life. To those who commit sin that do not lead to death, 
There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Let's stop here real quick. If anyone sees his brother in sin, not leading to death, if you ask God, the passage says that God will give him life. Look at how much power that the Christian has. It is very powerful. Note the words, God will give him life. God is the ultimate source of life. But the believer's prayer is so powerful to grant this person life. Or in another way to say spiritual health. So when someone is in sin, you should not say, let the pastor deal with it. No, friends, it is your responsibility to see to it that your brother is restored to spiritual health. If you love them, instead of talking to other people about them, you would talk to God about them. Now, friends, there is a time to bring other people into this. There is a time when you bring other people into the picture, which we will not have time to discuss today. But the kind of assurance that we have in prayer is not only are we confident to pray to God for anything, but that kind of confidence will even positively affect those who are in sin. Which means that you can pray and you can intercede for other people who are in sin. And God may grant them life. Did you realize that kind of power that you have? So that kind of assurance that you have does not only affect you, but it affects other people in this congregation. Now, notice... I just want to say something real quick. This passage should not be divorced from Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, most of you know this already. It says, brothers, if someone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual, go to him in a spirit of gentleness. So Galatians 6, verse 1 says, if a brother is in sin, you go to them. You speak to them. You tell them about their sin. But here in this passage, what we see is it says that brother who's in sin, you pray to God. These passages should not be divorced from another. These passages, what should I do if my brother sins? Should I pray to God? Should I speak to the person who have, who have fallen in sin? Well, both. Perhaps after praying to God, you find that the brother repents of his sin. Praise God. Perhaps it might, take, it might take courage for you to go up to this person and in the spirit of humility say, Hey, I see this sin in your life. I see this pattern in your life that is not in accordance to God's will. Brother, you're in sin. And maybe the person will repent then. But we always understand that prayer is a must. Prayer is a must. It's a non-negotiable thing. You are wrestling with principalities. You're wrestling with the flesh. 
And you have to understand that prayer is a must when you approach your brother who's in sin. Your prayer, friends, has power to rescue people from the bondage of sin. You see, we have a tendency to speak to other people about it, and we don't spend enough time speaking to God about it. But then there's a qualification. Here it is. It says, the qualification is that you can pray for them except if that person has fallen into a sin that leads to death. Now that's interesting. It says you can pray for them unless if they commit a sin that leads to death. He says don't pray for that person, or we can't pray for that person, rather, that commits a sin that leads to death. Now many interpretations have been um, proposed for this passage. What does it mean? What does that mean? What is the sin that leads to death? And I want to suggest just take two main possibilities. Number one, John is referring to someone who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Many of you already understand and you've heard of what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verses 31 to 32. He says, therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this age or in the age to come. Jesus clearly here is telling us that there is a sin that is unforgivable. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to attribute God's work to Satan. If you have been enlightened and you know what Christ has done for you and you know that the Holy Spirit is working in you, my friend, we must be very cautious that we do not attribute the work of God to Satan. Hebrews 6, 6, there's a similar language, and I think there's a connection here. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, it says, It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify themselves to the Son of God and put him to open shame. These are the people who have been enlightened. They understand. They're getting the truth of the gospel. They're understanding this. And in the passage, though, it's, though there are many interpretations of that passage as well, but it clearly shows that there are people who sin in such a way whereby there's no more forgiveness for that person. Eileen, um, the another, I'm sorry, n number two, the, another possibility is that John is referring to a believer. Uh, this view maintains that the sin that leads to death is a physical death. It refers to a Christian sin that is so serious that God actually takes the life of a Christian. We could think of a, of, of a few examples, right? We could think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they had lied and, and Peter says, you have not lied to man, you've lied to the spirit. And they, right there, they fell on the floor and they died. God judged them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, Paul says that um, uh, many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have even died. 
because you ate the bread and the, you drank the cup in, a, in an unworthy manner. And so that could be the judgment of God. And so perhaps when John is saying, hey, look, um, except for the sin that leads to death, maybe he's saying the people who are under God's judgment in that sense. But I leaned more towards the first one. I believe that the false teachers that John was speaking against were guilty of this kind of rejection of the Holy Spirit, perhaps. And John is letting them know that these are the kinds of people that cannot be prayed for. And this passage is not saying, literally, it's not saying don't pray for those people as much as it is saying it's, pray won't work for those people. You see the difference? It's not saying, hey, look, don't, I'm charging you not to pray for these people as much as it's saying, hey, look, prayer will not work for these kinds of people. So we're not going to be looking for people who have fallen in sin and say, hey, look, you might have committed that sin. Our goal and our job is to pray. But man, there are probably people who have committed that sin and we don't know. In this side of heaven, we do not know. Our goal and our and our and our desires that they will come to repentance. But if that person has committed that kind of sin, friends, there is no more grace for them. That is actually a warning for all of us that we continue, as we continue in the faith, that those of us who have been enlightened, that we do not shun what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts and in our lives. And so look at the power. I want you to see the kind of power that we have, not only for ourselves when we have assurance, but for also for the other Christians. Look at, look at how assurance affects the restored Christian. Look at, look at this passage. Okay, we started in verse 16 where, where it says that if someone sees his brother in sin um, that's not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sin that does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. What does verse 18 mean? What does that mean? He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. These people probably fell away from Christ and maybe they returned. But what John is saying, look, these people who return, there is evidence that they are true believers because they've returned, right? So what we see here in this passage is saying this. It's saying, um, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. You do not maintain that pattern in your lifestyle of sinning. Yeah, we're all sinners. Yeah, we all have struggles. We all are going to have one struggle or another, but... If you go on sinning, you don't care, you have no regard for God's word, you have no regard at all for, God's, for, for, for what God says about your life and how you should conform to his word, you have no regard for that, and you're, you're just living in sin, you have no reason to be assured. You have no reason to be assured of your salvation. 
and it is, if it, that is you, then I would ask that you would look to Jesus Christ and that you would repent of your sins and that you would trust in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only one that will save you. And trust only in his merit and in, on his work. And so understand what John is saying here. That not only is our prayer powerful, but even, in, even it affects those who are around you, those who are sinning, those who are being led astray. As you're praying for them, your confident prayer in God blesses that brother. And he comes back and he says this, verse 18, he says, Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Which means this, that the brother who prayed protects the brother who had fallen astray. You follow me? Verse 18, it says, he who has been born of God protects him. My friends, assurance, that kind of confidence that you have, yes, I'm saved, it affects your prayer life. You could be bold before God's throne and say, yes, you can ask for anything. And specifically, you can ask God, you can intercede for your other brothers. And yes, you have power to protect that brother. That's powerful. And it says, and the evil one does not touch him. What does it mean by that? If someone sins, does the evil one touch him? Touch you? So what we find in this passage, perhaps the, uh, perhaps the person went away, he went astray, and he's come back. And he says that the evil one does not touch him. The evil one does not touch that person. I'm reminded of the passage where Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might swift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Which means it's possible that, that, that Satan could tempt, but his faith not fail. You see that? See the connection? Which means that Satan wins when your faith fails. And so, the evil one does not touch him. The evil one does not touch him. This is how powerful your prayer life is, my friends. This is how powerful prayer is. I want you to consider the final section of this passage. It's a little bit difficult to follow exactly how this passage connects to the rest of chapter 5. It seems a little disconnected from the rest. But and even if you look at the last verse, if you look at the last verse real quick with me, it says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I mean, he didn't talk about idols at all. I just want to show you how he does this. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know who, him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the the true God and eternal life. And then all of a sudden he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And, and just the whole passage itself, this from um, the last few verses, it just seems a little bit disconnected and especially the actual last verse that says keep yourselves from idols. What's going on in this passage? Well, 
I'll, I'll try to see if I can make the connection in a, in a bit. But for now, let's kind of explore what the passage is saying. He says, keep yourselves from idols. Um, let's start from verse 19. He says, we know that we are from God. I want, as you're reading this passage from 19 to 21, 19 to 20, how many times he uses the word true? You follow me? Let's note how many times he uses the word true. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. And then he goes on, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What's the difference? There is, idolatry is worshiping a false god. John says that we know him who is true. We worship him who is true. He keeps on saying true, 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 and then he says stay away from the idols. They are not true gods. He's essentially saying that you and I have the truth. We have the true God. Stay away from false gods. Now, there are literally false gods being worshipped all around during this time. And John wants the believers to know to stick to the true God, the true mediator. He wants them to avoid idolatry. He wants them to avoid the false Jesus Christ that, that these false teachers were proposing. And it seems like a very black and white passage, very straightforward. Jesus is true. He is the one to know. If you are not worshiping him that is true, then you are necessarily worshiping a false idol. If you do not know or if you're not worshiping him who is true, you are necessarily worshiping a false god. So whenever I ask people how they're doing, if I ask you, Hey, how are you doing with your, in your prayer life? How are you doing in your devotions? How are you doing in worship? You know what, I'm, what what's being asked is more than just that. It's more of a, where is your heart devoted? Is your heart devoted to Christ? Because if you do not find yourself devoted to Christ, you are worshiping something else necessarily. By default. Worshipping may not be bowing your knees to a physical God, but it could be something that you are valuing above Christ. You can even take a good thing, like family and children, and make it an ultimate thing. And when you do that, you are worshipping an idol. And so that's why he says, little children, little children, very endearing. He's not just speaking to anyone. He's speaking to them with endearing terms. Little children, stay away. Keep yourselves from idols. I want to bring this home and show us how this relates to the issue of assurance and how we could think through these things throughout the week. 
John says, I write this to you. We're concluding the book of 1 John, the letter. John says the whole purpose of me writing this whole letter was so that you will know. I want you to consider the book of 1 John as a gift to you. Perhaps you do not have assurance. Perhaps you're struggling in that area. I want you to consider a few things from this passage, but before we do so, I want you to be reminded that true believers, true genuine Christians, actually do struggle with assurance. As we noted earlier, we see that John was addressing true Christians. He was addressing real believers. And we know this to be true in our lives, that we see so many things in our lives that are not in accordance to God's will. And we're like, man, I see so much lack. I need more progress. But I want to remind you that this was written for believers. First thing to consider as we wrap up our series, number one, assurance is built when we understand that we have the truth. When we understand that we have the truth. What we see in the last few verses, he says this, you know him who is true. You know the true God. When we know that we have the truth, we should grow in our knowledge of the one that is true. I want to ask you a question, a very simple question. How much time do you spend knowing truth? How much time do you spend knowing who God is and, what Je and who Jesus Christ is and what Christ has done for you? How many times, and we've talked about the indicatives and the imperatives before, how many times have you, do you spend thinking through these indicatives? Because we always want to run and jump to the commands, right? That's my, I always want to know, okay, what should I do next, God? What should I do next? And try, I'm always trying to, trying to run to the commands. And, but, but, but I don't spend enough time thinking through, marinating on these indicatives on who Christ is and what he has done for us. And I pray that you, will, this week, will take time to meditate upon these indicatives, what Christ has done for you. Think through the gospel. Latch onto this gospel message. Thrust yourself upon this work. So assurance is built when we know we have the truth and we grow in this knowledge of truth. But number two, assurance is built when you are killing sin. Assurance is built when we are killing sin. John concludes, he says, my dear brothers, keep away from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Of, of course, we talked about if you are not worshiping Christ, you're worshiping an idol um, you're, you're, you realize perhaps that you're looking to something else, that you're worshiping another thing, that you are in sin, or you're, 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 there's a sin that you do not want to repent of. I want you to know that that will 100% affect your assurance. 
And if you can sin and sin and sin and not and still feel assured, then you might not have any reason to be assured at all, actually. You should be the last person to be assured of your salvation if you can go on sinning without any sense of conviction. But my friends, we must work at killing sin in our lives. We must not let it grow. And so as we read, if you, if you want to read through the book of 1 John again, you keep seeing that same thing, commandments. Those who obey God, they, they obey his commandments. Those who really trust in Jesus Christ, they obey his commandments. They find that his laws are not burdensome. They are really looking at God's word and they're saying, I want to be obedient to you. Why? Because Jesus Christ, when he came down, he rose back up to life again. He gave us someone called the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is residing in you, then you have desires that are different. If Jesus Christ, if God has softened your heart, he does this operation, this change, your desires all of a sudden become you, and you want to obey him. Assurance also happens, brothers, when we love our brothers and sisters. The more that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, the more we grow in assurance. Some of us, we realize that these things, as we read through the book of 1 John, maybe it discourages you, maybe it does encourage you, and I pray it does encourage you if you are a Christian. But you realize that, man, I have these realities in me. I see these things in me, but they're just small. I don't feel like they're... I mean, I look at other Christians and it just looks like, I mean, they're just doing so well, but me, it just looks so tiny. I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to tell you this. If you see this small grace in you, if you see that little grace of Christ in you, you see what Christ has done, you see a little bit, I'm going to ask you to strive with all diligence to increase those graces in your life, to increase the love of the brothers, to increase your love of God. And we talked about how it is we could love God. We, um, we talked about that last week, how we can grow in our love for God. The more that we, are, we bathe ourselves in the love of God and the love of Christ and what he has done for us, the more that we grow in loving God ourselves. And so, friends, do not let it stay there. See, those, see to it that those graces increase in your life and in your heart. And that will build assurance. And so let's wrestle with this together. Let's think about how we can apply this in our lives practically throughout the week. And let's talk to, to one another during the context of the missional family. And let's wrestle with this thing. And let's see Christ formed in us as he should. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we... There's no one worthy, Lord, for you. There's no one worthy enough to... Preach your word. Um, God, I pray that you would please bless your word. Um, I pray that you will convict where necessary. You will encourage where necessary. That those, O oh Lord, who are proud, that you would put low. And those who are low, Lord, that you would lift up. Help us all, O oh God, that we will have true biblical assurance. Not just assurance, Lord, that we come up in our own minds 
but we have true, true, genuine biblical assurance and that you would bless us in our prayer lives, that our prayers would be more confident before you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.